0: Hi and welcome back. This is Police Stories podcast, and this is episode thirty. It's a series of short stories and general ramblings about my twenty-eight year career in the UK police force. Um, so, last week, if you've been following sort of in in order, um, we talked about a post into Gatwick and some of the uh, wind ups that we got up to there. There was a lot of work as well, honest, but you know there was also some. Uh, some fun jokes for sure and it was an enjoyable place and um it was good as i ended up uh, doing a year there unexpectedly because of 9-11 um but by this time i'd been you know an armed officer for about a year or so um had a few jobs uh, nothing too exciting um and at the time the force i was in didn't have arvs armed response vehicles but it was something that all forces in the country were going over to um, the sort of the Met led the way along with the other bigger cities, your Manchester's and Liverpool's, you know, they certainly had a gun crime issue and needed ARVs. Although I think as we discussed before, firearms officers and ARVs in particular, you know, don't just deal with armed jobs. You know, there's, there's lots of other use for their skills um, besides armed jobs. So towards the, the end of my time at Gatwick, it was decided that um, ARVs were going to be set up in the county um, I worked in. So the obvious choice for the bosses that were kind of looking at this option, where were they going to draw, you know, experienced armed officers from now, you know, with a year in at the airport, I didn't particularly consider myself that experienced and I'm sure nobody else did either. But, you know, we kind of... uh, I think we proved that we were reasonably reliable and and quite good, you know, at what we did. So we were the obvious choice, the obvious pool of people to start off ARVs. So everyone was asked if they wanted to, to get involved and if they wanted to sort of start ARVs and set them up, you know, or assist in setting them up. And I think of the, I think there was around about a dozen of us at this point, um, pretty much everyone wanted to, I can't think that anyone sort of said, no, they wanted to go back to response policing, you know, um, answering the 999 calls uh, because it was you know it was enjoyable work certainly for me that's why i did it you know and i think you know everyone else involved felt the same um it was certainly a challenge at times um so what they did first off was having been accepted there was you know a process you'd expect an interview and they knew me but you still you know had to have an interview and a board and further tests and uh harder fitness tests you know so we'd done a, a reasonably stringent one but it, it was a step up for arvs it was another level of fitness required um, which I, I got through well I wouldn't say I cruised through it never been particularly fit or a good runner or anything but I came up to the standard so I was accepted into ARVs and to be honest with you you know to start with there wasn't an awful lot of uh, rule books to follow in terms of right how do you set up ARVs you know you don't kind of go online and google it and and that's it you know obviously um, some of the sort of uh, weapons instructors went around to different forces and looked at how they ran things And initially what they did was um, some old sort of nicks, some old police stations that were dotted around the county had um, some of their cells that weren't in use for prisoners. So they made the the obvious choice for armouries. You know, we needed somewhere to keep the guns and it was quite a big county. So you couldn't afford to all sort of arm up in a central place because by the time you drove out, um, you know, you'd lose two hours of your day driving out to the edge of your ground and then also back again at the end of the shift. And also... It potentially if those places vulnerable with no arm cover, you know, while there was this changeover of shifts happening. So it was decided that uh, kind of at each end of the county, as well as centrally, there would be an armoury set up. Uh, We already had one centrally. Um, But the east and west, they basically converted disused cells in police stations that didn't do custody anymore, you know, where you'd normally put a prisoner because they've got a big solid door with a massive key, etc. And they fitted gun safes into those cells and they were used as armories. So the weapons and the ammunition were moved to those locations. Um, Now, first off, we had to do an ARV course. Well, we'd already done our sort of two-week AFO course, you know, the Authorised Firearms Officer and that gave us our basics, but that only really covered sort of containing places and, and sort of sitting up and waiting effectively for somebody to ideally come out and give themselves up. You know, we, we weren't really uh, wanting to go in at that point. And certainly the skills we had, we weren't trained for that. There was people that were, but they were, you know, in short supply. So we did the ARV course, and this again was sort of um, dreamt up is not the right word, but, you know, they put this course together in conjunction with... Other forces, you know, so they had a, a pretty good idea of of what they were doing, and it was a really good course. It was four weeks long, I think. So we'd already done two, um, so we could already, you know, sort of achieve the the classification shoot, the sort of test level for um MP fives, which was our Heckler and MP five, a nine millimeter sort of carbine, a short rifle, really good accurate weapon. Um, so we were quite proficient in that, um and then we'd gone on to do a pistol course as well, which at the time was uh, a sig a sig pistol semi-automatic a p226 without being too geeky um and uh so you know that that was the sort of the first two weeks of a, a six-week arv course anyway so we were able to do a four-week arv course which covered the other things that we hadn't touched on so we could contain places and we could deal with perhaps someone walking you know in the street with a weapon that needed to be stopped um, but not much more than that, really. We certainly hadn't done any sort of vehicle training, how to stop vehicles. Of course, we knew how to stop vehicles. We'd done it for our career at that point. But, you know, doing an armed stop on a vehicle is very different. And there's different levels to that. There's kind of low-level, low-threat stops where you may not even have guns on show. It's a simple, it would look like a normal traffic stop to anyone else. Um, but the the weapons are there available should it develop, you know. And this was for a silver commander, quite often a chief inspector and also in conjunction with a TACAD, a tactical advisor, who would be helping that chief inspector decide the tactics um, on on how we would sort of uh, deal with vehicles. And that was all about sort of intelligence and information um, and conditions. You know, if you're stopping a vehicle in rural Nowheresville, you know, that's different to having to be forced to stop it in the town centre outside the primary school. You know, that's something we try and avoid. But. You know, sometimes you just don't get a choice. You don't get to choose where you stop these vehicles because you follow them, intending them to stop in a certain place. And of course, they just pull up and say, "Why are you following me?" You know. Um, so we had the sort of low-level, low-threat stops, and we also then had your high-threat, hard stops, uh, which was a totally different beast. That was um, where vehicles were potentially nigh-on forced off the road if, if not crashed into, and to force them to stop. Um, it's also part of the tactics as well, potentially crashing into them to totally disrupt them. You know, uh, in some scenarios, uh, you may have seen on the, on the TV, you know, where people are out and smashing windows with batons. That certainly goes on, uh, or it can do, depending again on this threat level, because that's all about shock and awe. You know, if you're a bad guy and you've got a gun in your lap and you're thinking the first cop that stops me is going to get it. You know, if you suddenly get, you know, two cars you hadn't expected, because they may be unmarked cars, they might not be marked ARVs crashing into you. And then suddenly you've got, you know, four great big gorillas of blokes or women, you know, charging at your car, shouting and smashing your windows of batons. And by the time you sort of recovered from that, you, you come round and open your eyes once you sort of uh, brushed all the broken glass off you to find at least two people with, you know, arm cover on you and you're staring down the barrel of a gun. So very effective, a hard stop, very aggressive. It has to be, you know, but also massively high risk for for the cops in terms of, you know, you are only ever seconds away from pulling that trigger in in that scenario. Um, and certainly, lots of the training focused on decision making. You know, the the horrible scenarios of people, you know, suddenly pulling out, you know, mobile phones and, you know, if they're in an address, pulling out remote controls quickly and things like this. Um. And, uh, you know, really difficult decisions to make. And bearing in mind, you've got a split second to make that decision. Now, when these things don't come to court or inquest or anything like that, you know, a jury or, or, you know, somebody sitting on a board with a number of other people has all the time in the world to sit there and make that decision, you know. um, Oh, do we think this officer, you know, made the right choice? I'm not sure. Let's have a cup of tea and have a right good think about it for the next hour or two. You know, that cop has had a split second to make that decision. um, And he's or she is almost certainly basing that on an honestly held belief that their life or another person's life was in danger um so i e pointing a weapon at you um and, but where it becomes difficult and there was cases years ago in London for example, where um <clears throat> information um uh, that a guy had a, a sawn off shotgun for example in a pub and that he had it in a plastic bag and that he'd um Pointed it at someone, or I think he'd shown it to someone, and somebody thought, wow, that's well out of order, I'm going to ring and tell the police about this. Um, So, you know, description gets put out, he leaves the pub just as the armed officers are turning up, Um, and whether he intended to, you know, you have something called kind of death by cop or suicide by cop now, or whether he thought it was funny or didn't take them seriously, I don't know, but for whatever reason, he had that thing in the bag rolled up, yeah, the bag rolled up tightly around it, so it looked about the size and shape of a uh, a sawn-off shotgun, and bearing in mind the information they had going to that job, um, when they approached him, he raised it up and pointed it at them like um it was a weapon. Um, so he got shot uh, by the police. Right or wrong? You know, again, you've got time to sit there and decide, but try and picture, you know, that information you've got, that intelligence you've got, everything pointing to the fact it seemed to be a genuine weapon and then you've now got again as we keep saying a split second he's now pointing it at you like it's a weapon. Do you wait? You know, maybe it's not. It turned out to be a chair leg, uh for some reason, you know, um that he'd raised up and that of course made it all the worse. Um but um that that decision, you know, was made by that cop who you know, really had to think, am I going home tonight? You know, am I going off my shift now? I know in in other countries that perhaps wouldn't be a problem at all. And no one would bat an eyelid that that person had been shot. But in the UK, it's a massive, massive deal for police to shoot someone. Um, and and that went on for years. And that's the other thing, you know, with cops that pull the trigger, um, those, these things can rumble on for years afterwards. Um, and a cop can go through a really horrible place, you know, really sort of go through the mill in relation to that. Um, so there was lots of sort of um, tactics, lots of training. We, we, you know, we trained for vehicle stops and vehicle searches. We trained for persons on the street. Um, we trained for, you know, people on foot and running from us. We trained for rural scenarios, you know, someone walking across fields with a weapon. And we also trained for very much urban areas, you know, Um and we also obviously still dealt with containments so of sort of uh keeping people in houses and keeping them surrounded effectively while we try and negotiate them out, but there has to be a conclusion to that, and in a scenario, let's say where it's a a siege and they're holding a hostage, maybe it's a domestic scenario and they're holding you know their other half their wife or whatever hostage um What's the step up to that? If he's got a gun or you believe he's got a gun and you've seen the gun through the window, what looks like a gun, because don't forget, you know, what looks like a gun may not be, as we've just discussed. Um, And uh, if suddenly she starts screaming or there's a gunshot and it all goes quiet or there's a gunshot and she's screaming, you know, any of these sorts of scenarios, what do you do? Well, you can no longer sit outside and wait. You can't contain, you know, because you you literally ultimately our our role as police officers is is to protect life so you have to get in there and some people might go well that's really dangerous you can't go in um but i always thought i was actually safest you know safer than ever when i was armed because um yes i might be you know faced with an armed suspect but i had the tools and the equipment to deal with it um so and i you know, I put myself in the position of the person inside who's just been shot or stabbed or something like that. They have nothing. They have no body armour, no protective equipment, no training, and they're completely relying on someone to come and effectively save them and maybe save their life. So that would come down to you as an ARV officer. So there was also an option of, like, an emergency entry and emergency actions called various things in various forces. But ARVs had to have the ability to start you know effectively gain an entry so that was maybe smashing down doors and getting into premises um one of the ways that you did that and we were introduced quite early on um is to a stun grenade um or a flashbang you know depending on again various names in the military etc um which is you know where they came from their background now I remember having a a lesson on stun grenades early on, and it was explained to us, you know, how you deploy it and what it should do. And they were saying, really, it's a lifesaver. What it'll do as an officer, once you deploy it into that room, it'll gain you those vital seconds to get in there and get some arm cover on a suspect um, prior to them recovering and being in a position to shoot you, basically. Now, some of the training scenarios we used to do, you would take it in turns to play baddies. It sounds like great fun, and I suppose it was to a degree. But obviously, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, "Well, this is pretty serious, and this could actually happen one day." So, quite often, everyone would be issued with paint rounds. You know, and you'd have body armour on, you'd have eye protection. Um, And they would put you in, we used to use sort of disused buildings, buildings that were earmarked for being knocked down. So you'd have like an an old office block or something. So I had a series of rooms or bedrooms or whatever. Great training scenario. And they didn't matter if you shot a bit of paint around or if you smashed the odd window or if you had to, you know, put a hole in the wall or something. It wasn't a problem because it was getting knocked down anyway. So... Um, on several scenarios but one particularly when we were training with the the stun grenades we had eye protection ear protection I was put in the corner of a room and I was given a revolver with a paint round or with more than you know like six paint rounds in and said the arm team is coming down the hallway they are going to search all the rooms sequentially it was a corridor with various rooms along it they will come through that door here is the revolver you have got paint rounds in. Obviously, we checked that that was the case. There was no live rounds anywhere on the place, so it was completely safe. Um, all you've got to do, your only aim is to shoot one or all of those cops when they come through that door. That's all you've got to do. So you're like, okay, and you think this is gonna be easy. You know, I've got this cracked. You know, they're definitely getting it. No problems. So sure enough, we hear the shouting and we hear them, uh, you know, sort of systematically searching down the corridor and entering these rooms. And in they go. And they get outside my door. And by now, I've cocked the hammer on this revolver. I've got it raised in the shooting position and my finger's on the trigger. And I'm thinking, the second that door opens and they come in, um, I'm just going to pull the trigger and I'll win. You know, I will shoot them. Um, So it got to that position. What happened was the door opened and in comes sailing through the air, something small and black. Now, it's almost impossible, even though I was waiting and ready for it and trying to not let it distract me, to follow that with my eyes as it came in two seconds later it explodes in a massive loud bang and flash a huge eruption um now i've got eyes and ear protection on and i'm ready for it and you still have no choice but basically to you know sort of cover your eyes put your hands over your eyes you know put put your hands up um and and by the time i lowered my my hands which i'm telling you was like one second later i was thinking right now i'll shoot them I looked up to find two MP5s pointing at me. So it's a really effective tool, and there's different versions of them for different jobs. Quite often, if you see or hear a siege on telly in the UK, and when it comes to a conclusion, if stun grenades are used, you'll hear members of the public saying, oh, there was all these shots, I knew some had been shot, I heard loads of shots fired and all the rest of it. They almost certainly didn't. Um, You know, stun grenades make a sound basically just like a gunshot, and if you throw a few of them in an address... Uh, bearing in mind the operational ones can have nine bangs per grenade so if I throw three in there my mass is not very good but that's a lot of bangs you know um, and all of those are you know have a massive flash and a bang with them so really really effective um, and we always carry those in ARVs as they still do now I'm sure we also had a baton gun so that fires like a large rubber bullet that was a less than lethal option to start with we didn't have tasers they weren't in but they came along later um, and then we carried on normal sort of batten and pepper spray, you know, parva spray like um, every other cop did. So some really good equipment uh, on on the wagon, you know, that you carry around with you and be able to deploy. Um, so, yeah, we completed the course, thoroughly enjoyed it. It was really good, uh, really good course. And I went out feeling, you know, quite confident. One of our final shoots we had to do on the range to qualify was this classification shoot again. And it was much harder than the standard AR, sorry, the AFO shoot. So it would be quite specific. You might have 10 rounds in a magazine and you'll be told, you know, run down the range, a 25 metre range, get to the 7 metre point or the 10 metre point and then you fire, you know, there's four targets that will turn when the targets turn you fire you know two to the chest of of each target you know and then one to the head or whatever it would be they'd be quite complicated so you'd have to quite you'd have to think about them as well as now you're puffing because you've run Um, and quite often had the ability to put smoke into that um, range and also they even had like a blue light that they could mock up to a car battery so you could have smoke and flashing blue lights sometimes they'd even put like loud music on get you running down the range they might get you running up and down the range a couple of times first just to make sure you're puffed out um but you know that is reality you're not going to have this lovely shot where you stand there and everything's all nice and calm and you know you you sort of squeeze off the trigger and it's all great it's almost certainly going to be under massively high pressure and this is why and we talked about this before you know the the aim point is the center of the chest the the center mass you're most likely to hit under under a stressful situation so we'd had the shoot on the day and it involved a lot of rounds um something like maybe a hundred rounds in very quick succession from your weapon being fired um and it tested very thing it tested various things you know magazine reloads and all sorts going on um and when the the um the shoot had finished we ended up in the kneeling position Um, with our weapons pointing down the range um, in a safe way safety catch on fire but we hadn't used all the rounds in the magazine so there was still a round in the chamber so to fire that gun all you had to do was flick it to fire on the safety catch and pull the trigger that was it so it was it was loaded made ready that's the term that we'd use there some forces again say state one and state whatever but that's effectively where it was at so we finished the shoot the instructor came up behind us we were all lined up and we still had some rounds left in the magazine and, and one in the chamber, like I said. Um, no one should have been shooting, you know. We were at the point where we were about to take our sort of eyes and ears off and, and uh, by that I mean the ear protection and, and you know, goggles or whatever. Um, when my friend who was sat beside me, also in the kneeling position, suddenly there was a loud bang and he fired a shot off down the range that went flying off down the range. But the there was some shrapnel that was ejected out of the weapon beside me And he actually went flying off along the line of cops that were kneeling next to him. And it went through the sleeve of my overalls and carried on and hit somebody in the face. Thankfully, fairly low level. And I think they just had a nick from it. But this poor guy, he was absolutely mortified because he knew he hadn't fired. And uh, he was really keen to show me, look, my safety catch is still on safe. You know, I've not put it to fire. I've not had an ND, which is a negligent. Negligent, I can't say it. Yeah, you fired when you weren't meant to. Negligent discharge, Um, and so you know he was absolutely appalled. And you know that's why, like, instructors don't come and stand in front of guns on ranges. But of course, there was a big investigation, and this poor guy was, you know, really concerned how it would affect him. Um, But the reality is, what had happened was he had something called a cook-off. They're quite rare, but basically, we'd fired so many rounds through the weapon that the barrel had really heated up, and now the one round that was. Uh, loaded into that breech, ready to be fired again, sat there in the red-hot barrel and just sat there. And eventually the temperatures got so high because they recovered the the rear part of the cartridge and the firing pin hadn't hit the back of the the cartridge. You know, the primer wasn't dented. It was intact. And they think the temperature just got so high in the barrel that the round had just cooked off, hence the name cook-off. So he was cleared of any wrongdoing. But, yeah, it was... um, it could have gone really, really bad, you know, and, and he was very pleased that he was exonerated. So that was quite interesting. Um, and then uh, what else we had? So fairly early on in my career, we were tasked to go down to um, what is now a city on, on, the, um, on the south coast of the UK. Uh, there'd been a shooting in London where basically a guy was sat in a barber's chair having his uh, hair cut. And somebody had just walked in behind him, put a pistol to the back of his head and pulled the pulled the trigger. Um, and as you'd expect, he was killed stone dead. Um, now, the information was that this guy had fled down into uh, this city and we had the address that he was meant to be at. And there'd been a lot of inquiries and also a, an OP, an observation post on that address. Um, and they confirmed that three guys that fitted the description had gone into that address. So we didn't know exactly which one, but we we were pretty confident our man was in there, one of these three. And we were tasked to go and make the arrest for murder for this guy. And this was quite early on in my ALV career. So obviously it was a terraced house, i.e. there's houses either side of it. So there's no sort of side route options out. Um, And then, so they can only get out the front and back. Um, Obviously we spent, we sent, I can't speak today, sorry. We sent um, armed cops to uh, the rear and they put on a containment. And then we went to the front door where we knocked on the door and basically uh, it took several attempts, but eventually someone came to the door. Uh, And then you can imagine now, you know, this is absolutely, you know, the highest level it gets. This is a full on sort of point, pointy gun shout thing, you know. So we're on aim, which means, you know, round in the, in the breach, safety catch on fire. All you've got to do to fire that shot is pull the trigger and the, aim of your weapon is on the centre of that person's chest because he fits the description so obviously you can imagine we're shouting and screaming at him to put his hands up let us see his hands and then step out of premises slowly and then once he comes out we get him to turn around and lift his jacket up and then keep going. eventually he's drawn away from the address where we cuff him up now the first one came out no problems as did the second one which led us to believe that those two almost certainly weren't involved um and and in fairness, I don't think they had any clue what was going on, but of course they were terrified because no matter how much of a hard man you are, you know, if someone's shouting at you, uh, very sort of aggressively, in fact, if half a dozen guys in black or girls, you know, are shouting at you and pointing weapons at you, um, are isn't many people that still believe they're hard men, trust me. Um, and it wasn't unusual for people to wet themselves in that scenario. You know, if we, if we did, you know, an aggressive sort of hard stop quite often, they would wet themselves. Um, So two of them come out. Third one's in the address. Now, the door is partially open on the front door and I'm standing on the sort of door pillar. So hopefully only half of me is on show within that premises because obviously I'm trying to minimise my chances of getting shot. You know, this potentially is an armed suspect who's already killed someone and quite frankly has nothing to lose. So I say it's about as high risk as it gets. And I could see sort of diagonally through the property through what was probably a lounge and then onto another open doorway which looked like a kitchen you know i could see some sort of kitchen cabinets and a cooker um and i could see that there was a third person in there so i was shouting at him come out you know show me your hands a lot more aggressively than that i can tell you and um urging him to come out you know there'd be no harm to him as long as he came out with his hands where we could see him don't make any sudden movements etc so this is the sort of thing you're shouting at someone and you've got to really try and control yourself here because don't forget your adrenaline sky high as well. So, firstly, you go a bit high-pitched. Um, and secondly, it's very easy to sort of garble it, you know, if you if you shout it too quickly. So, they end up not being able to understand you because, don't forget, they also are under a lot of pressure here. Um, so, I say it really is a sort of dangerous moment. But this guy was in there and I could see him bobbing about, you know, he's kind of moving side to side. I was getting glimpses of his face and then of his hands, but n- I never saw all of him at all. So, you know, it was... It was worrying times, you know, as I say, that the sight was roughly where his chest would be, that sort of height. The finger was on the trigger and I knew that, you know, should he come out uh, with a weapon pointing at me, for example, you know, then almost certainly I'd be pulling the trigger. So, and it was the first time I'd perhaps been in that, that position where I really believed it could happen the way he was reacting. Thankfully, uh, eventually he came out and did what he was told, you know, he kept his hands where we could see them um, and he was brought out and he was brought into custody. Um, and then obviously after an incident like that, you then go on to have quite a lengthy involved debrief, you know, that would um, go through, you know, why did you do that? And why did you stand there? and And just it was more like a chat between friends, because it's really important to understand why your different colleagues did things, because you can learn from it, you know, and they can maybe learn from what you did. Or equally, you might think, why did I stand there? Next time, I won't ever do that again, you know. Um, And it also got quite heated. You know, sometimes colleagues, you know, wouldn't pull any punches and go, you put me on offer by standing there. I had to stand out of cover because you were in my way. Um, You know, and you think, God, I didn't realise at all, you know. So really good learning points can come out of those things. Very, very valuable. Um, So we would deal with those sort of things, uh, arresting sort of armed suspects, we'd also do a lot of what was called masts work which is mobile arm support to surveillance we've talked about surveillance before and in a big surveillance convoy you could have a dozen cars that were following this one person um, now generally if it was an arm job you might have a couple of uh, unmarked uh, cars or some a couple of marked you know uniform arvs tagged on the back of the convoy generally you you'd stay away from it and you wouldn't get near it at all Um, because you'd quite often be doing sort of lifestyle surveillance on the person. So you're just trying to build up a picture of where do they drink, you know, where do they work out, where do they go to eat, you know, who are their friends, those sort of things. And perhaps you've got information this person is going to do an armed robbery at some point. But they tagged on the armed cars at the back of the convoy because if he suddenly met someone in a pub car park and you could see there was an exchange, you know, of a handgun or something like that, you suddenly think, wow, we didn't plan for this, but it looks like he's going to go and do it now. He's got the gun, so they might suddenly need to turn it into a full-on armed stop. You know, um, so what would happen then? It would be quite exciting. Is they would get the armed cars to make up the convoy and do do the stop on this person. So what you could then have a the scenario was um, we might be a mile or two off the back of this convoy and off the back of the target, but the surveillance cars will be calling you through. Now, what can happen there is you can almost have uh sort of um something that looks like it should be in the olympics kind of everyone moving as one um you could have two or three armed cars making up through a convoy and every time there's a gap um in in the traffic you know there's three cars popping out and driving very fast and overtaking half a dozen cars at a time but what can also happen is um and it looks like you know synchronized overtaking is quite um quite interesting to see You could have a series of blind bends with solid white lines so you can't see around the bend and you certainly can't overtake because it's solid white lines it would be suicide to overtake but what members of the public didn't know was that you know um, just around the bend we had two surveillance cars already and they'd be calling us and saying it's all clear come on through Um, so basically around blind bends and solid white lines you'd have three armed you know maybe unmarked cars coming out at once overtaking doing 10 car overtakes and slotting back in and making up the convoy to get to the head of this convoy so that they could figure out the best place to actually do this arm stop so a lot of mass stuff that was uh, quite interesting a lot of the time sitting around doing absolutely nothing um but uh you've always had to be on your game you know you could have literally um 10 hours sat in a um you know supermarket car park waiting and then you know 15 minutes before you're due to finish the operation and go home for the day having done a 15 hour a day or something the target suddenly starts moving or the information changes and you have to go with it and sometimes that would involve many more hours on duty but what they did do after a while was um, start limiting how many hours you could do on duty as an armed officer because you cannot make good decisions after a 20 hour shift you know and that was proven and we were very aware that should we have had to pull the trigger after a 20 hour shift and it eventually went to court um, or some sort of inquiry or you know complaints procedure to try and convince you know someone on in that court on that jury that it was a safe thing and that you were you know making good decisions at that point was unlikely so they started very much limiting um the officers that armed you know armed off the hours rather the armed officers could work so yeah ARVs really enjoyed it um I had some great times uh, got involved in some really hairy stuff and in fact um probably next time we're going to deal with um the biggest incident of my career i would say um uh, a full-on armed incident that it didn't go wrong, but it it went all the way to its conclusion. And uh, we won't say too much about that more now, but that'll be next week. So uh, hopefully you'll come back and listen some more. I hope that was interesting to explain a little bit about uh, ARVs and the course and what it's like. Um, Episode 30, Done and Dusted. Keep the downloads coming. Over 2,000 downloads now, which I can't believe. I'm, I'm really pleased with that, so thank you. And uh, please let anyone know that you think might be interested as well. All right, thanks for your time. Take it easy. Speak soon. Cheers, bye.